Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask now that your word will speak to us. We ask that your spirit would open wide our eyes, that we may see, the, see your glory, the glory of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. I pray that your spirit would empower us to live lives worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just want to continue on a topic uh, on a topic that I brought up a few weeks back, and that's the topic of role models. And uh, I want to just give you a sort of a reminder of what I shared at the end of that message, and that was simply to say that all of us are people who are created. Uh, we are created beings. We're not God in the sense that we are not self-defining. God is self-defining, meaning that when God says he is who he is, that's reality. When God says, I am holy, or I am love, or I am just, he defines his own reality. He defines himself. God can do that because he is God. God is also immutable. And uh, that's, that's a word that we don't really use too often. But, you know, a few weeks back, Pastor Chin talked about loving God and all of his attributes. And if you ever study the attributes of God um, ever in your life, one of the attributes that's often attributed to God is immutability. And that simply means that God does not change or God cannot be changed. Meaning there is no external forces outside of God himself that influences him or shapes him to change. God is immutable. God is self-defining. We, on the other hand, as created beings, we are neither immutable nor self-defining. In other words, we are people that are influenced and shaped by things outside of us. People that we meet, experiences that we go through, the culture that we live in, all of these things shape us and influence us. We are much more like clay, like Play-Doh, not Plato, the philosopher, but Play-Doh, the little clay. We are much more like Play-Doh than we would admit to being like. We really are very much influenced by the things around us. Just look at how big of an industry the advertisement industry is. You know, why? Because they know that they can influence us, okay? Um, the important question we must ask ourselves is not whether or not we're going to be influenced, Okay, because we are, and I just want to, that's a fact of reality. I don't know if you're a philosophy major, and you may want to challenge the notion of, of the self, but, you know, I think common sense tells us and common experience tells us that we are influenced. So the question isn't whether or not we're going to be influenced. The question is, is what's going to influence us, right? The important question for us Christians is not whether or not we're going to be shaped by things outside of us. The question is, what are we going to allow where are we going to place ourselves in and what context are we going to find ourselves in and what are the things that we're going to allow to either shape us or influence us? That's the more important question. It's not whether or not we will be influenced, but what, shall we be, what will we be influenced by? Okay? Now, if you, um, like I said, if you emerge yourself in a certain culture, if you surround you, yourself with a certain type of people, um, you will likely be shaped and influenced by them. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job's, if you read the wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, if you 
Um, and we did a series on Proverbs long ago. But if you read the book of Proverbs, especially the opening chapters, you know, Proverbs really can be summarized into, into this, uh, this uh, notion of what are we going to be influenced by. Proverbs basically lays out for us two, uh, two ways to live. One is to be influenced by the violent people, the sinners, um, the adulterer. One, one way to live is to open ourselves up to their influences so that we are enticed by their way of life and fall into that pattern of life after them. Or we can heed wisdom. Wisdom is personified as a voice crying out in the streets, come, you know, come hear me, come follow me, live a path of righteousness, live a life of righteousness, follow me on the path of righteousness. So Proverbs basically says there are two ways that we can live. We can be influenced by the sinners and, and, and those um, adulterers and all of the things that are negative. We can be influenced by that, or we can allow ourselves to heed the call of wisdom and be, be influenced by wisdom. That's really the essence of what Proverbs is all about. It, it gives us basically two ways to live, and it urges us to follow wisdom. It says, put it around you like a, like a garland around your neck, like a necklace, so that, it, that you keep it close to you, so that you can follow wisdom instead of following the other way. Um, another way of, of asking that question that Proverbs asks is, what is the controlling influence in your life? And this is really the most important question for us as we think about uh, living a spirit-filled life or what it means to be a Christian. The question, that, uh, the question of influence really it, it comes down to what is the controlling um, element? What, what is the, the thing or person or culture or whatever you want to describe it? What is that thing that has the final say or the controlling influence in your life? And I'm going to come back to this at the very end of March because that's ultimately what Ephesians 5 tells us being filled with the Holy Spirit is about. It's about controlling influence. Who has a controlling influence in your life? And Apostle Paul in Ephesians talks about, is it wine? You know, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when we're, when we're drunk on wine, I'm told um, that you do things that you normally wouldn't do because wine has an influence on you, right? Have you ever seen someone who's inebriated or really drunk and then they do, I'm sure you have an experience that you've seen people, right, or seen it on TV. Uh, have you ever seen those really drunk and they say or do something that's really out of character? Yes? Anyone seen anyone in this? No. Uh, and then what, and the next day when they're sober and then you point out like, boy, that was something nice. Huh? What did they usually say? Oh, that wasn't me. Oh, man, that was the liquor talking. That was the liquor working in me, Right? What is that person really saying? He's saying, normally that's not me, but when I'm drunk with wine or, or alcohol, that has a controlling influence on my life that I do things that I normally wouldn't do. And that's the sort of illustration that Paul uses to talk about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit influences our lives to, to do and say things beyond ourselves. Okay? It, it becomes a controlling influence in our life. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that we have to understand is that um, we, all of us, are influenced. And the question that we must address is, what are we being influenced by? What are we being influenced by? Now, before we kind of look at the re- kinds of relationship that Paul describes in the text that we read today, it's also important to remember that influence can be either positive or negative, or both positive and negative, right? There, there are things in our lives 
that have influenced us for the good. Right? There are people in our lives who have blessed us, who have shown us how to live rightly. They are, um, uh, there, there are things that influence us and shape us in a, in a positive way. But there are also influences that shape us in a negative way. In a negative way. It's positive or negative. I want to I just briefly share with you uh, a story. I love the story. Um, it's about Paul and Peter. You know, we, we think of uh, the early church as sort of an idyllic, happy-go-lucky. It was a, it was a wonderful time of, of growth and, and miracles and people loving each other. And, uh, and anyone who's read the New Testament knows that's not quite nearly the case. And there's a story in Galatians that Paul tells. And to be honest with you, it's a little bit unfair because Paul's the only one who's telling his side of the story. And I, I imagine... Uh, Peter, who in this text is sometimes referred to as Cephas, that's, his, um, that's another name for Peter. Um, Paul and Peter have a sort of a fight, a confrontation. And Paul tells his side of the story, his account of it in Galatians chapter 2. And, and I love the story for various reasons, but there's one uh, part of it that always jumps out to me. And it's talking about influence, how, how uh, subtle influence works and how even Paul as an apostle who was Who's, who, I, I don't know, when, when you read the Bible, do you, do you imagine the people? I mean, you know, you want to kind of see them as real people. I, I imagine Paul being a little austere. Anyone else see Paul as a little austere? See Paul as a happy-go-lucky guy? No, Paul just seems a little austere. Um, and Paul is kind of the serious, austere guy. And, and I love this because Paul does something in here that shows us how he understands the role of influence, negative influence, in a believer's life. Let me read you that story just real briefly, just a couple of verses. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And this is a story he's telling the Galatians about his encounter with Peter. When Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, Antioch is the city that Paul and Barnabas uh, were a part of. That's the city that commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go on their missionary trips. So this is sort of their home church, okay? Okay. Uh, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So it wasn't one of these, pull him by the side, talk to him gently. I mean, this is a public confrontation. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain, before certain men came from James, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Okay? It was a very heavy uh, Jewish congregation, right? When certain, before certain men from James, he used to eat, that is Peter, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, so in Antioch, there was Gentiles and Jewish believers all fellowshipping together and all eating together. And Peter used to just, without thinking about it, would just go and eat with the Gentiles like there was nothing wrong with it. Now, James, he tells us, but when they arrived, that is James and some of the people from Jerusalem arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So here's Peter. He's fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He's, he's, he's eating with them. Everything is okay. And all of a sudden, this group from Jerusalem, James, a leader of the Jewish church, comes along with a delegate from that church, comes to Antioch. And all of a sudden, Peter is not so comfortable hanging out with the Gentiles anymore. Peter is not so comfortable. His Jewishness is, is kind of coming out. And he begins to sort of separate himself from the Gentiles, and particularly not eating with them, right? And then this is the verse that I love. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, 
Okay? The others joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Okay? And the reason I, I use this passage to illustrate the power of influence is that, okay, so Peter comes, um, James comes with a delegate from Jerusalem, and they begin to sort of come in talking about the, you know, the church in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden Peter, I, we don't know exactly what Peter was thinking. I mean, to be honest, this is Paul's version, all right? So Paul's an apostle, but he's not a mind reader. So Peter may not have had this in his mind, but this is the accusation, right? This is a confrontation. Peter, for whatever reason, apparent to Paul, withdraws himself from the Gentiles okay, and begins to eat only with the, the Jewish Christians. And Barnabas, who is good friends with Paul, you know, his ministry partner, is the one that brought him to the church in Antioch. Paul, Barnabas looks at what's happening, and Barnabas now withdraws from the Gentiles as well and begins to only eat with, with the uh, Jewish delegate, right? Now, knowing Paul, what... Knowing Paul, I would have guessed Paul would have just laid into Barnabas. Like, Barnabas, what are you doing? Of all the people in the world, I would have expected you to not to fall for that. But he doesn't. He doesn't blame Barnabas. Who does he blame? He blames Peter. Okay? This is, this is where I see what Paul, what Paul is subtly saying is that it, that, that it was Peter's fault for negatively influencing Barnabas. So that by Peter's hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. It's like... It's like a, uh, a parent who entrusts their child, like a 13-year-old child, to a, a teacher, a classroom, a 40-year-old teacher, a male or female. You can choose your own villain in this case. And that teacher takes a child on a field trip, and on their way back to the field trip, takes them to this really kind of a unsavory bar and gets the kids all drunk and brings them home. The kid comes home, hey, we had a great time in the field trip, you know, I'm... I'm feeling good, mom or dad or whatever. And, and the parents get mad. And, and who would you be mad at if that happened to your child? I mean, of course, you could say, what were you thinking going to a bar and drinking? But your anger would really be focused on the teacher, would it not? I mean, what, it, what are you as a 40-year-old teacher thinking, taking these 13-year-olds to a bar and getting them drunk? And that's sort of what Paul is saying. He's saying, Peter, by your hypocrisy, you led astray even my good friend Barnabas. Okay, And so... All this to simply say, Paul recognizes the power of, of how people around us shape our own faith and our actions, either positively or negatively. Okay? We are not immutable. We are not self-defining. People around us, who we hang around with, the culture we immerse ourselves in, the experiences that we go through, all of these things shape and, shape and influence us. It really does. And if we're not careful... If we're not careful, if we place ourselves in situations and contexts where we allow ourselves to be influenced by things that we ought not to, then it's going to influence us in a very negative way. The power of influence is very, very real. And it's, very, it's something that is, is actually so important because it's really the way in which influencing and shaping other people is really the way in which God calls us to do discipleship. Okay? And that's at the heart of it. Why, why all this talk about influencing and all of these things is because the way that God calls us to grow in Christ-likeness, the, way, the manner in which God calls a, a people, a group of people, to grow into mature Christians, to become more like Christ, is by influencing each other positive, positively. It's by allowing the Holy Spirit to use relationships, 
what I would call life-transforming relationships, what I would call, you could call it a mentoring relationship, you could call it an influencing relationship, but whatever the case is, God's design for you and I to change is to influence one another towards positive change, towards Christ-likeness, right? And now think about your faith. What are, the, what are the biggest influences in your life? Is it really not people? Is it not, is it not people and relationships that have, shaped, that have most profoundly shaped you and your faith? And because this is the means by which God has ordained that the people, that his people would grow and mature into Christ-likeness, we have to be doubly careful about the kinds of relationships. We have to be doubly careful about the kinds of influence we allow ourselves to be open to. And we have to be very intentional about placing ourselves into relationships that are meant to influence us in a positive way. So I want to talk a little bit from today's text about what it means about what it means to be in intentional relationships. Um, I do want to make one, one last comment on, on the story of, in Galatians about Peter and, and Barnabas and Paul. Even though it's not in the text, I am 99.9% positive that Peter didn't set out to lead Barnabas astray. Okay? I'm fairly sure that Peter didn't sit down, you know, before going to bed one night and saying, you know what, I think tomorrow, this coming week, my agenda is going to be to lead Barnabas astray into sin. I don't think that was his intention. What Peter failed to recognize is the power of his own influence. He was a leader in the church, and he failed to recognize that what he does influences other people. And by failing to recognize that, he felt to recognize that his actions had more impact on, on the people around him than he realized. I simply want to say this to all of us. I think sometimes we minimize the influence that we have in other people's lives. Um, you know, as, as pastors, God will hold us accountable for the kinds of influence that we, we sometimes have without even realizing it. I know I speak for Jen and myself. Well, I'll speak for myself because I don't want to misrepresent Jen in some ways, particular ways. But I'm sure he'll, he'll mostly agree. You know, I, I, I am, you know, when I interact with, with you, I try to be intentional in, in the way I am. I really, I really do. And it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> but that part of not seeming like it really is. Because I know, I know that what I say about prayer, what I say about faith, will impact you. And for me to be ignorant or to deny that I have some impact simply because of my position in the church is to, deny, is to sort of be naive. And, and this is to say all of you also have influence in people's lives that you have to be aware of. Okay? Parents, you have influence in your children's lives beyond your imagination. Friends, you have influence in, in one another's lives more than you think. You know, co-workers, children and parents, I mean, all kinds of relationships, husband and wives, we influence each other much more than we realize. And, and we, have to, we have to realize that our actions are not our actions alone and that what we say and do does impact other people, right? Yes? Um, I have a, this is, not in, this is not in my text, but 
I have a, we have an, I have an old friend. I say we sometimes because, uh, uh, like Josh and I, I don't think Esther, uh, that grew up, we grew up in the same church. There's a, there's a guy, there's a young man. He's a, he's a professional comedian, um, and he was an old student of ours, like a youth group student. And he, he wrote me a recently an encouraging email saying, you know, how, how much uh, he was impacted by our ministry back in the days. And I'm like, oh man, I hope this, I hope this was somewhat positive. But along with it, and this is just a preamble, along with it, he sent us a couple of clips. He sent us on an email a couple of clips of his recent stand-up comedy routine. And I'm not going to do it justice, but I thought it was funny enough to and sort of illustrate this. And he's talking about how he has little kids now, a three-year-old. Uh, how old is Solomon? About four, maybe four or five. That's how close we are. Um, he's, he, one of his routines is this little kid... Uh, the setup goes, his wife comes back from shopping or something, the little kid comes up to his mom and says, says a bad word. I won't repeat it here. Like, and then she's like, where did you learn that? Where did you learn that bad word? So, daddy taught me. Daddy taught me. And then he also says, this is, I don't know, this is why it's not scripted. I'm kind of going off the end a little bit. And then, and then he says, he says the words, daddy taught me. And then he also looks at mom and says, no cookies, no cookies. And then the father goes, oh, and the mom goes, what, what is that? Where, where did you learn that? He says, no cookies, delete browser history, delete browser history. That's the joke. All right. And then, and then, and then the joke is, where did, he, where did he learn that phrase? And his whole routine is, oh, you have to see the clip. I apologize. I, I, boo. Basically, the point was the son was learning from the parents. And the point I'm trying to make, and I did it poorly, and I should have just showed you the darn clip, but it's funny. When he does it, it's funny. When I try to do it, it's not as funny. There, there are certain limitations you have in the pulpit of really going stand-up, right? So I apologize. I found it to be funny, so I included it. It was in my head. The point is, we say and do things that we don't think people see, that we don't think people are watching, and that we, we think that it, it doesn't really impact other people. But it does. Peter influenced Barnabas without intentionally trying to influence him, just by his relationship with him and who he was. And I really, I really want to impress upon you that as members of this community, that you influence one another here as well. And that what you say and do, especially if you are in a visible leadership position or you're, you're in the front rather leading praise, you know, or, or teaching, and, but, but you don't have to have any of those positions to, to have influence in this community. You have influence in this community. So I want you to not, not just live for yourself and your actions just saying, well, it's not going to hurt anyone. Well, you don't know that. The, the amount of influence and impact that we have on people around us is sometimes subtle, and we, we don't recognize it. And I just want to impress upon you from this passage in Galatians, be careful, because you may lead someone astray, like Peter did Barnabas, without even you recognizing it. And how horrible would it be that if someone's spiritual downfall was simply because through your actions you led them astray? Okay? I could have probably made the same point without using that previous illustration. But alas, I learned my lesson, and hopefully I didn't lead you astray through that illustration, all right? All right. Now, let me go back to, what, to today's passage, Thessalonians, real quick. And I want to talk about how, what uh, some of the characteristics and traits that Paul 
describes this kind of relationship, what I will call life-transforming relationships or, or life-influencing relationship. If you look at today's text, there are several characteristics that um, we can find in, in a relationship that is meant to be positively influencing, okay? Positively influencing. The first characteristic we find in Paul's relationship with the church in Thessalonica, yes, um, yeah, one bad illustration and your sermon goes off the rails. <laughs> so you've got to stick to your notes. If, it's not, if it didn't make it into your notes, it probably didn't do so for a reason. It's not that I didn't think of the illustration before, it's just I found I was wise enough to not to include it, but alas... All right, here we go. Let's move on. Help me move on. Stop looking at me weird, all right? (laughs) I'm sweating. All right, here we go. There are a couple of characteristics about the kinds of relationships that Paul describes in this text that we read today. First, a meaningful, influencing, mentoring, impactful, transforming relationship. I use all of these words sort of interchangeably, but you know what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's the kind of relationship that shapes us. These, in order for that relationship to be effective, okay, it has to be a loving and caring one. In order for us to be uh, positively influencing other people in a meaningful relationship, it has to be a loving and caring relationship, Okay. Specifically, why does it have to be a loving and caring relationship? Because in order to influence and change um, and transform one another in relationship, it has to be a safe space. There has to be a safe space. We have to create safe space where we can be vulnerable in order to change. Okay? All of us know that true change involves some sort of uh, openness and trust, right? What I say is, what I mean is, um, if you're struggling with a certain sin, okay, let's say, you know, when we pray the prayer, we, we, what do we pray? We say, there are sins that no one knows, and there are sins that everyone knows, right? Well, the sins that no one knows, if you want to change in an area where you've, you've hidden it from everyone else, where no one knows, rather it be greed, or covetousness, or envy, or, 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 or rage, maybe, maybe you struggle with murderous rage, Amen? I know some of you do. You think you're hiding it. You don't. Maybe, you, maybe you're struggling with rage, but you masked it, okay? You masked it, and, and you really want to change that area of your life. Well, here's the thing. You're never going to be able to address that issue in your life unless you find a safe space where you can address that issue with someone, right? Because here's the thing. If you're always covering it, if I always, let's say I have murderous rage. I know it's hard to imagine, but let's just say I have murderous rage, but none of you see it, and 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 I'm, you know, I'm in a relationship, I'm in a relationship with Jen, and, and I want Jen to help me change. But I never share that side of myself because I just don't feel safe in this relationship. Well, ultimately, you know, even as I'm changing, my default mindset is going to be, you know, Jen really, this, you know, Jen doesn't really know who I am. I mean, if he really saw how, how what? <laughs> how... How angry I'm inside. If you really saw how, how mad and, and, and just what a bad person I am, 
he, he, he wouldn't want to be my friend. He wouldn't want to be in this relationship with me. And so if we have things that are hidden from each other, we always fall back on this thing of they don't really know me. So everything they say, that sounds good. I mean, they say we're, we're kind and we're growing, but they don't really know me. I struggle with this thing. I haven't grown, and I, I, I want to go and kill someone every day because I'm so mad, and he doesn't know that about me. That's not me. That's not, I'm not confessing here. That's just illustration. <laughs> illustration. And, and we can all easily default to say they don't know me. It's only when we are able to really be and confess and be vulnerable in a safe environment that true change and transformation happens. If we are to grow in Christ-likeness in an area that we're struggling with, we need to be in safe relationships. And in order to create safe relationships, we have to love and care for people. I am never going to open myself up. And I'm, I'm a very guarded person. I'm, I'm, I've, it's not like I've been hurt before or something, but for whatever reasons, I'm very guarded. And I will never open up to anyone if I don't believe in my heart that that person cares for me. There have been few people who have uh, profoundly shaped my faith um, through my life. Uh, my, you know, parents, mo- many of us, our parents have profoundly shaped us. But uh, the few people that I've really opened up to, the few people that I've, in my sort of formative years in college and youth group and so forth, the ones that I've really opened my heart to are the ones that I felt like I could be broken in front of them. Are the ones where if I was struggling with something, where I felt shame about something, is, is, that, I, that I just felt like with this person, I could tell them, and they would still love me. They would care for me. Look, look what Paul says in verse 7 and 8. He says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Okay? I, just as a nursing mother cares for her young children, so we care for you. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, in order for, for me and my coworkers in, to be in to be in this life-transforming relationship with you, I want you to know we care for you. We love you. And not only does he say it with his words, he says it with his life, right? He works extra hard. He, he goes the extra mile. He's extra gentle. He's extra concerned about propriety and, and not being impropri- improper and his words and his behavior. He, he's doubly careful about how he lives so that he can win their trust, so that they know that he loves them, he cares for them. And if we don't create a safe environment for people, we're never going to really truly uh, impact one another the way that God intends for us. So Paul creates safe space for the Thessalonians in his life, in, t- in this relationship, by, number one, declaring for them that he cares for them and living out that care and the way he interacts with them. Listen, you know, we talk about this community over and over again, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if you don't feel cared for by someone in this community in a deep, meaningful way, it's not going to impact you because we just aren't going to invest into a relationship where we don't really feel cared for. This is something that, you know, I hope that you really hear, that Genuinely care for people in here because that's the first step of creating that kind of relationship. So first, he cares for them. Second thing is, he is honest and truthful with them. Okay, Listen to what he says in verse 4, at the end of verse 4. He says, We are not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. We, you know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Okay, In other words, the second way that Paul 
creates this environment, creates safe space. He says, I never try to flatter you. Okay? I didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear to gain influence in your life. It's easy to gain influence in someone's life by just letting them, telling them what they want to hear. You know, if someone's struggling with an area, you just sort of affirm them in those areas and you gain influence. And he says, I never did that. I never used flattery to try to gain influence in your life, to try to gain a foothold in your life. He says, I was always honest with you. And the second thing he says is, I never tried to cover up my motives or intentions. I never try to take advantage of you. What Paul's saying is, you can trust us. You can, you can allow us to shape and influence you, one another, because I don't have an ulterior motive. Right? One of the quickest ways to kill trust and kill safe space in a relationship is to give the impression that you are caring for them to take advantage of them. Right? It's like a coworker who doesn't say hi to you for months on end, and all of a sudden, you know, you come with, you land the season tickets to courtside seats at the Lakers game, right? And all of a sudden, this person has an unusual interest in your well-being. Hey, how's it going, you know? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing well. And you kind of get to know them, as, and, and, you know, sooner than later, he, he or she begins to drop little hints about, oh, yeah, those Lakers are doing well, and you know, if something inside of you says, this person is being nice to me because he wants to take advantage of me, what does that do to you? It shuts you down. It shuts you down immediately. If, if, if you feel like someone in church is being nice to you because they want something like... Also, unscripted illustrations. I have to be careful. I'm not, I won't go there. Sometimes my mind comes up with these uh, impromptu, so we'll stay away. But if, you know, if you have... If you're in business, for example, and, and, and people in church are coming to you, and, and you wonder, like, are they here because they want to make some business deals? I mean, it's, if you can't trust someone's motives, it's really hard to invest your life in them so that you, 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 you're involved in this relationship where it's transforming. In our church, if you feel like Pastor Jen or myself or one of the leaders or the praise team member, I mean, if you feel like, you know, if, if I call you up and say, you know, Hey, young, can we, you know, let's have coffee. You know, let's, let's have lunch together. Young and Hills and Hills is looking at me sad. Let's, let's have coffee together, lunch together. Uh, and and if, in, in his mind, if he felt like, oh, why does he want to have lunch with me? Does he want something from me? You know, is he, does he want something of mine? That's going to kill that relationship. I'm not going to be able to speak into his life if he feels like there's an alternative motive. Same with, same with me. If I feel like you're coming to me or you're saying something to me to flatter me or to gain an influence in my whole, I don't know why you would, but if you are, you know, if I sense dishonest motivation or some kind of, it just turns me off. And a lot of the times, I, we, we have grown distrust because people have taken advantage of us. It's only after the fact we realize they wanted something else. And so what Paul says, he says, he says, number one, I care and love for you. Number two, I'm honest with you. I, I'm honest in my a speech with you. I say what, I, what you need to hear, and I have no ulterior motives. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. Okay, that's what he says. And the third thing that he does is he shares his life with the Thessalonians. In, to order, in order to create safe space, he shares life with them. The word that's translated, uh, translated here as life is really the Greek word for soul. And what Paul is saying is, I, I'm sharing my soul with you. In other words, he's saying, okay, I, I want to enter into this life-transforming relationship with you where I shape you and you shape me. Where we are being shaped and influencing each other to be more Christ-like. 
And what he says is, to do that, I'm going to share, bear my soul with you. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to teach you and, and, and treat you like a, a client or customer. I'm going to share my life with you, okay? If you really want to be in a meaningful relationship, you have to be willing to share your life with one, with one another, okay? Now, sharing life doesn't mean that we're constantly with each other. It doesn't mean 24-7, like, hey, how's it going? You know, how's it going every few minutes? That, that's not what it means. Listen, I am wired as an introvert, okay? Let me just, this little sharing my soul, opening up my heart. Introvert does not mean shy. If you know me, you know I'm not shy. I talk to, I talk to people pretty easily. They tell me I was talking to people during my swim at every stop. <laughs> At every 50 meters, I'm like hanging out to the wall going, hey, how's it going? <laughs> pretty rough, you know. Uh, it's pretty hard. All right, you want to go first? Or I'll go first. Uh, introvert does not mean shy. Okay? Introvert does not mean not being able to say things directly. If you know anything about me, man, as I get, as I get older, my filter, is, I need a new filter. I mean, it's getting thin. The best way to live is say what's on your mind directly. Introvert means... But in order for me to get re-energized, I need some time by myself. Yeah, I love being with people. I really do. I love spending time with every single person here. Okay? I'm trying to make sure I'm not trying to use fire. But I do. I love spending time with people. But it's draining. I, I love spending time with people, but it drains me. So that after I spend time with you, I need to be alone. So sharing my life with you does not mean contact me when I'm alone. Right? It, means, it does not mean that I don't care for you. It just means I am now drained. My battery is empty. I no longer can be with you without feeling overwhelmed. So leave me alone. Uh, sharing your life doesn't mean we're in each other's lives 24-7. Okay, some of you extroverts need to know that. Extroverts are like, come on! You know, extroverts, extroverts want to be with you 24-7. Introverts are like, no! You're sucking my energy. Um, what does it mean, though, to share life? It means being vulnerable. It means, it means opening up yourself, opening up your soul. Some of the more meaningful and profound conversations I've had with all of you are either when I've shared something I'm struggling with or when you share some of the things you're struggling with, when you, you know, famous words of James, peel another layer of onion and see that other layer underneath that big layer, there's another layer. When some of you have shared some of your inner struggles, meaningful struggles, things that, that showed me your soul, there's part of me that just wants to embrace and say, I so want to help you in that area. I so want to bless you. I so want to pray for you. I so want to walk with you in that journey. That's what it means. It means to share life. If we don't get into those kinds of meaningful relationships in our church, and, and we've done so well, we've, we're doing better, but if you, if you feel like this church isn't providing that kind of relationships, challenge one another, because those are the kinds of relationships that are transforming. It's the ones where you bear your souls with one another. 
So, so if we are to be in these kinds of relationships, the, the kind of qualities that Paul's talking about is we have to create safe, loving space. We do that by caring for one another. We do that by being honest in our speech and not trying to take advantage of them. And we do that by sharing our lives, sharing our souls with them, okay? And the second important aspect of what it means to be in these kinds of relationships, and I hope we, we pursue these relationships, is that we have to be intentional about them. These relationships doesn't just happen by sort of wishing it would happen, or it doesn't just happen naturally. There's a lot of effort. Paul goes out of his way to form this relationship with the Thessalonians, right? There's intentionality, and Paul um, creates this meaningful relationship because he has a clear vision, clear vision of the kind of life that we ought to live and pursue, the kind of life that all of us ought to pursue as Christians. Now, follow with me. This is, this is the last point, and we're ending with this, okay? Some of us have learned to start forming the kind of relationship that I just talked about, okay? All right? I don't need you to raise your hands, but if I, if I were to talk to each one of you, some of you will say, you know, maybe I didn't feel like this three, four years ago, but more, more so now I feel like I'm developing these kinds of meaningful relationships. That's wonderful. But having these relationships in, a, in and of themselves will not create the transformation that Paul is talking about. Do you know why? Because in order to create transformation in these kinds of relationships is that we have to have a common vision for life. This is one of the most glaringly absent aspects of modern evangelical Christianity, is a common vision for life. There are a couple of things that undermines this. One is we are taught that we are individuals and we have a right to shape our own life, right? We, 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 it is our prerogative and our right to envision what a good life should be. Like, no one can tell us what the good life should be. No one can tell us what kind of life we ought to live, right? There's some sacred cows in our lives that we just are not willing to let other people tell us how to, how to live. Money, right? When's the last time you welcomed people telling you how you ought to spend your money? Anyone? When was the last time you talked about how you spend your money with someone other than your immediate family, including your wife, spouse, brother, sister, mother, child? One about actually about your money and how you ought to spend it, the wise way. What is the vision for life for spending the resource God has given us? Anyone? Anyone appreciate it when says, hey, you know what? I, think, I don't think you're spending your money wisely. Anyone appreciate that or have that conversation recently? Child rearing. Oh, don't, don't go there, right? I mean, that's like ruin a friendship, tell another parent that they're not really doing a good job raising their child and say goodbye, right? There are other areas, too, that we think is sort of sacred cows. That these are our areas that no one has a right to tell us how to live in these areas. And so what happens is we have our own sort of disparate visions of what life ought to be, and we just go on doing our own thing. So we, don't, we can't shape each other towards anything because our visions of what life should be is different from someone else's, and we just, well, you live your life the way you want, I'll live my life the way we want. That's how it is. Even people we care about, like, you know, if, if, if Jen and I... I, I picked Jin because he's safe. He, he's <laughs> right. Jin's not going to do anything. Some of you, I'm like, oh, I got it. <clears throat> uh, if 
I can't influence him in his life, and he can't influence me in my life. Even if we care for each other, even if we've created safe space. And Jin and I actually are a good example of this in that we actually um, have meaningful conversations where we, we talk about difficult things. I mean, I got to tell you, in the last, what, six to nine months, I mean, they're having some intense conversations where probably more me than him, but I've, not the murderous rage, but, you know, I've kind of, under stress, just went off the deep end, you know, at times. And, and even if we have that kind of relationship where we can say hard things to each other, if we don't have a common vision for how we ought to live, there's really no way to prod them. Do you understand what I'm saying? How do I know that Paul has that? Paul says two things. There are two phrases that he uses, one at the end of this verse and one in chapter 4. He says, live life worthy of God. So when Paul says live life worthy of God, is he talking just ambiguous? Or does Paul actually have a vision of a life that is worthy of God? He really does. He really does have a vision of life that you can live your life a certain way that is worthy of God. And in chapter 4, he says live a life pleasing to God. Same things, right? Live a life worthy of God. Live a life pleasing to God. His goal is to help the Thessalonians live a life worthy and pleasing to God. And he has his vision of what that life ought to be. And he, and he wants the community to embrace that vision together and pursue that life together, right? And, and when your personal sort of view of life is not in, in, a, not in um, alignment with this greater vision, we can say, hey, you know what? You know, stewardship, maybe that's not the best way to, you know, maybe living a life worthy of God does, doesn't mean you use the resources God's given you in that way. I, I, you know, it's being able to speak into people so that we shape them towards a common vision for life. And so many churches, so many Christians are so afraid to say we have a common vision for life that we ought to pursue. We are so individualistic. We are so afraid of speaking into each other's life about a common vision for life. Our relationships are so fragile. Our relationships are so fragile and so tenuous that we can't speak into one another's lives because we don't have this vision for life together, right? And that's what a community is. Community has a vision for life together. Our family unit has a vision for life together. Esther and I don't say to the kids, you live your life any way you want. No, in our household, whether we have an explicit vision for life or not, rather we understand it, we have a certain idea of what a family life, our family life ought to be, and we instruct our children and say, we want our family life together to be this way. In our family, we respect each other. Okay? In our family, we, we use common courtesies of please and thank yous and so forth. I mean... We have a vision for life in our family that we try to live out together, right? It's not five different visions, and you do what you want to do. But when it comes to church life, when it comes to Christian life, when it comes to our community life as a church, we often lack that, and we're okay with it. One of the things that I want you guys to be excited about is when we launch the new church. Have you guys, do you guys realize that we now have, how many weeks? Four? Five weeks? Five Sundays. After the five Sundays... We could count down five Sundays to go. Cross community will no longer be. Have you thought about that? How many years? How many years will will, will it be, Jen? Seven and a half years. That's a wonderful run, right? Through good times, 
through difficult times, ups and downs. Cross Community Church, as an organism, as a church of God, has existed for about seven and a half years, and it's now on its last five Sundays. There's going to be a new community. It's going to have a new church name. What I want you to get excited about is to get a vision for community life of this new church. And it's not, that's not the name of the church, you know. <laughs> new vision community church life. No, new vision life community church. It's, I want you to get excited about what it means to live in community in this new church, okay? And, 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 and with this new launch, we want to be as explicit about having this common vision for life together. We, we want to draw on the kind of life that Jesus teaches us, and we want to draw characteristics and virtues that we want to adopt and say, as a community, we want to pursue this vision for life, what it means to live a life pleasing to God together. And we want to speak into each other's lives. We want to create safe space and safe relationships. Amen? I hope that's what inspires you. It's not about having more praise members. It's not having a third pastor in the, in the sermon rotation. You know, it's not about, I don't know what it's about, but it's not the little, you know, the details. Those are all good things, but the real passion, the excitement and joy of launching a new church together is going to be this vision for, for community life that we can have, right? And that ought to excite you. And, and I know the design team and Pastor Jen and others, we're going to be talking more about this. That we're going to spend the first six months of life together talking about creating this vision for life together and being excited about it. Okay? Um, Paul has a clear vision. He understands what it means uh, to... He has a clear vision of the kind of life that he wants the Thessalonians to live. In verse 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul was not ambiguous. He, wasn't, he had a clear idea of what that life was, and he was willing to share it. Okay? And the way he does it is he models and instructs what this life is about, okay? Paul says, I want you to live lives worthy of God. What's the first question that you would ask Paul if, he's, if, if, if he came today and said, I want all of you to live lives worthy of God? What would be your first question? What would be one of your first questions? Say, just say it. I mean, because I know you're going what's, what's, what's the first question you would say? Well, okay. Uh, the first, one of the first things that I would say Okay, is what does that life look like, right? And then Paul says this, I'm going to model for you what that life looks like. Okay, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to model it. You follow me, right? Um, when you learn anything new, when, you, when, you, when you're learning to play baseball, okay, maybe that's a basketball, not many baseball players, but when you're learning to play baseball and hit a baseball, and someone's teaching you how to hit a curveball, Okay, and what the, how do they instruct you? They instruct you by saying, okay, this is what you need to look for. In order to hit a curveball, you have to look at the pitcher's hand, okay? You have to actually see the spin of the ball as it comes off the pitcher's hand. You have to be able to project the break, and then you have to time it, and you hit it. Okay, so you instruct them. 
And he said, well, let me show you how it does. They either show you video clips and shows you how the hand and the curve looks like, and you show. So you demonstrate in, 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 you know, so that they can imitate you, follow you, and you instruct them. That's what Paul does. He models for them the kind of life they ought to live. Do you want me to show you what a life that's worthy of God looks like? Here, do what I do. Look at what I'm doing. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm foregoing my rights as an apostle to serve others. You do that too. Okay? What am I doing? I am being honest in my speech. I am not trying to flatter people. So you, when you go live life worthy of God, don't flatter people. Okay? Don't try to take advantage of people. So he lives his life in such a way and says, live your life like me. And then he explains, he instructs them through his teaching and through his letters why that's important to God. So it's both teaching and modeling, right? The best way to teach your children is through both modeling and teaching, right? Kids won't listen to you, your teaching if you don't model it for them, right? This epiphany just dawned on me this morning. As I was driving with Joshua to church, and, and Sunday morning traffic is, you know, there's no traffic, so... I wanted to eat my sandwich. Joshua, can you drive? He's driving, and he's hitting 80. He's hitting 80. I'm like, Joshua, really? 80 miles? Can you please not go over 75? And, and, and I say that to him, but he keeps going 80. And it just dawns on me, you know, last night as I was driving to Northridge, I'm going like, <sniffs> and so it doesn't matter what I say. What he sees in me is basically someone who speeds a lot, and I'm what I want to say to him is, hey, when you're paying for your own insurance and, and your own ticket and car, then you can speed. That's what I wanted to tell him, okay? But listen, can you imagine if I actually drove like 65, 70 everywhere I went, rather in a rush or not, how much more impact would I have to tell Joshua, hey, Joshua, you know, it's not good to speed. And he'd be like, oh, you're right. Not, not thinking this, I'm like, but you just went 80 last night, man. Why are you telling me to go 75 when you go... When I'm in the car with you, you're going 80, 80. Why are you telling me not to go something? You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Modeling instruction is so important. In our church, once we have the common vision for life, um, we have to model and, and for one another instruct each other. The bottom line is, is there really isn't any other way to change. You're not an island. God doesn't change us by ourselves. He doesn't. You're not going to change by sitting in a closet and meditating on God and just praying. I mean, you think you might be changing, and, and that's part of it. Okay? And I don't want to diminish quiet time and praying. That's part of it. But God designed us to change by rubbing with one another, rubbing our shoulders with one another, being involved in these relationships. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Um, I, I just want to ask you, you know, no, I, I want to say I, I, I want to be a better uh, role model for you guys as well. I do. That's, I'm not afraid to say as a pastor, I, I want to be that. But I want you to know you influence me as well. And I hope you, right now, in your heart, have a desire to be a better role model for not just me, but for others around you. Are you in a strong relationship? Do you have a common vision for life? Will you pray? Would you hear God say to you by name 
that God is calling you by name and asking you to intentionally pursue these life-transforming relationships, these influencing relationships, would you hear God and the Holy Spirit saying to you, I really want you to be part of these life-transforming relationships in this community. And as you hear God exhorting you, would you just open your heart and say yes? And all that, in, all that it entails. Father God, many of us are afraid to invest our lives into one another. We confess that we are afraid to really be part of these kinds of relationships. It's so much easier to live for ourselves and to ourselves, but well, there really is no way to truly transform and change into Christ-likeness unless we're willing to invest ourselves into um, life-transforming relationships that are deep and rich and where we share common visions of life and we are prodding one another in honest speech and, and caring and modeling for one another and positively influencing one another to good works. Lord, these are the kinds of relationships that we want to have in this church. This is the kind of community we want to be, that when someone walks through these doors, that they have access to these kinds of relationships. And that's what we want to be for your glory. So to that end, we ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us and help us step out of our comfort zone and help us to reach out and pursue these relationships for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.